I was recently reading the Rolling Stone and I came across the headline, how to pivot your cannabis company when industry challenges come your way. I thought I might have an idea of what this article was about and my suspicions were confirmed by the subline. For those on the fence about diving into these hemp infused waters, I say, put on your life vest and start swimming. Folks, <laughs> today I'll be speaking to the author about this article what they meant, and so much more. Folks, you're listening to The Cole Memo. I'm your host, Cole Preston. Every episode is released in audio, video, and transcript format. To find the transcript, audio, or video version of any episode, please refer to the description of the episode that you're listening to now. Within that description, you can find a link that will take you to our website, which will display the transcript for this episode and the platforms where you can find this episode in audio or video formats. If you're unable to locate the episode description on whichever platform you're listening from, I get it. Platforms change all the time, and it's kind of hard to know where they tuck those episode descriptions. So if you can't find it, simply note the episode number and visit thecolememo.com. From there, you can find the corresponding episode, and then you'll be able to access the audio, video, or transcript version of that episode. You might also find any links that we referenced during the episode, like the one I just read or the article that I just read, rather, so that you might be able to do your own research. If you're not listening to this episode of The Cole Memo on Patreon, then you're listening to this episode later than our patrons. To become a patron, go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. Once again, that's thecolememo.com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's a great way to support our show. It only costs $3 a month, and you get episodes as they release. One of the best ways to support our show, however, is free. Subscribe to or follow our show. Leave us a positive review from wherever you're listening to us from. Favorite this episode, give it a thumbs up. Leave a comment, post a review, tell your friends about it. Your engagement and support is appreciated. Today is December 20th, 2023. I don't know why I just about said August. I'm joined by Allie Jubilier. Allie, how's it going today? Oh, and you're muted. Sorry, you're still muted because I asked you about <laughs> Whoops. Sorry. Hi. No, it's going well. Thank you. And you got my last name right. So good job. Ooh, hell yeah. Off to a good start already. <laughs> well, really quick, I just want to lay a little bit of foundation here. And then I want to have you actually go ahead and introduce yourself and then I'll lay the foundation. How would you introduce yourself? Uh, if we just, I mean, we're encountering each other right now. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, I am a lawyer by background. I, uh, I actually graduated from Loyola here in Chicago in 2000 and spent most of my career practicing law, either at a law firm or um, in-house. So I was at Tribune um, back in the day and then went to Groupon after that and left Groupon in 2019 to become the general counsel of Revolution uh, Cannabis here in Chicago which I like to describe as the um, as the uh, the smallest of the big MSOs and still privately held. Um, I was there for about two years. And then that second year is when COVID hit. And I ended up leaving. Um, I like to say the wheels kind of came off during COVID with the kids coming home from remote learning and everybody kind of reevaluating their lives. Um, so I ended up leaving um, Revolution. And for about a year after that, I was doing legal consulting work in both tech and cannabis. So I was um, acting as the outside general counsel for a cashless payment platform called AeroPay for about a year 
and also just working with other clients. And then um, during that time, uh, I kept watching the New, Me- New Mexico market because of some personal connections that I had there and saw that they were coming online for adult use and decided that uh, I was going to give it a shot and put a team together to apply for licenses in New Mexico. Very cool. And off we went. <laughs> and and that was the the inception of Dynamic Jack, which is a cannabis company that I now run in New Mexico. Very cool. Very cool. Dynamic Jack. Uh, do you want to shout out the uh, web website for that or if anybody wants to check it out? Yes. Um, also, I'd love for my dog to stop barking in the background. Um, it's uh, www.dynamicjack.co, C-O. Um, and you can check out our line of products and um, more about us there. Sweet. And I don't even think I heard your dog barking. Uh, so the, okay, well, the noise good. cancellation <laughs> must be working out. Um, that's good. So he- here's how I think I'd like to lay the foundation for this. Um, and, and maybe we can... Um, kick things off. Uh, I want to give you the floor. How would you explain, and you have this in your article uh, so people can see a text explanation of this as well, but how would you explain what the difference between hemp and marijuana is? Can we start with that? Yes. Um, And it's funny because everybody that I talked to describe has different words that they use to define the difference, which of course, is um, complicated because the the plant is the same plant. It's sativa L. Cannabis sativa L is the scientific name of the plant. So I call it regulated cannabis, and then I call it uh, hemp D9. But I always have to kind of explain it. And, you know, neither one is really uh, correct, I guess. But... um, that's how I talk about it. And of course the difference is what is legal and what is not legal under the farm bill. Um, so the hemp is a con uh, like a legislative construct essentially that has deemed the cannabis plant to be hemp. If it meets certain THC levels or lack thereof, I guess. Yeah. I, the way I like to describe it is like, there's a fence right here. And on this side of the fence, you've got your legal terms. And I keyword legal terms, marijuana and hemp, because I don't mm-hmm. choose to call the plant either as either of those names, because on the other side of the fence, you have your scientific terms. So in other words, we're talking about cannabis here, but we're talking yes. about almost like arbitrary definitions that we've made for the plant. Would you agree yes. with that? And like you said, based off of totally the key, the key thing is, like you say, based off of uh, the amount of THC that's in it by dry weight. Is that right? Or? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Uh, 0.3%, you know, uh, dry weight. And that's, you know, the loophole, right? Because um, everybody read that restriction and then decided what would that look like if it was not dry weight and what could we kind of get away with? And that's how the loophole in the farm bill was born. Um, I don't call it, I'll tell you one other thing on the, on the language. I actually don't use the word marijuana because I feel like it, it derives from sort of racist, you know, uh, terminology and, and the history of the, the plant. So that's another reason why, because it would be very easy. I know a lot of people do say like marijuana and hemp, and I just want, I don't like using the word marijuana, so I avoid it. Yeah, totally with you there. Totally with you right there. Um, another, uh, this is a graphic 
uh, explanation that I like to show from a comic artist. His name is Box Brown, and it just really helped it click for me. Um, but I'll give you a moment to take it this in. And maybe could you tell our mm -hmm. listeners, do you agree with what you're seeing right now? Let's see. The language has been extrapolated to mean that any hemp product with less than 0.3% THC by weight is, in fact, legal hemp. Yes. So I like this graphic representation because it shows that these companies seem to have figured out, you know, if you if you make most of it, you know, gelatin, sugar, even mm -hmm. CBD or cornstarch, if you just keep a little sliver of it, THC, mm -hmm. it's a legal product, right? Yeah, yeah. And, but I mean, I would say even that a lot of manufacturers have taken that much further, you know, in terms of extracting 0.3% THC out of these plants that are grown for low THC, right, in the first place, and then kind of replicating that over and over and over again until you get, uh, you know, hemp D9 in a distillate that's as intoxicating as regulated cannabis distillate. Um, yeah. It's just a function of extracting and concentrating the amounts down, and then it's the same thing. So... Yeah, it's, and uh, it's fascinating. It really is. And I think this gets to the point of your article that maybe I can really open up the floor for you here, because I just loved everything about what you had to say about this. And I really think there's it's becoming almost irresponsible not to get into the hemp space if you are a cannabis operator. And so just to lay some foundation here, a few tweets that have really caught my attention. Uh, Chris Becker from the Honeybee Collective said, I just talked to a bank that will take deposits from and providing and provide funding for farm bill authorized businesses, including THCA hemp. Between that, the farm bill extension and state prohibitions on hemp being decimated in court, the hemp space is almost irresistible. Then you have yep. people like Snoop Dogg getting into the THCA vape and D9 THC drink uh, arena. You've also got people mm -hmm. like Tommy Chong and uh, Cheech Marine getting yep. in there. And then yep. the icing on the cake, you've got a big cannabis brand, one of the most well-known, I'd argue, cookies, selling THCA through the mail. Um, and 1906 just jumped in, too. Did you see that? That they're launching all of their cute little, I call them pills. I don't know if they're really called pills, but, you know, launching all of those with MD9 so they can sell them online, direct yeah. to consumer. So what yeah. made you what made you write the article? Was it that? Was it that idea that it's just becoming irresistible and it's like sink or swim, baby? Piss or get off the pot, <laughs> you know? Yeah, basically. I mean, I, I was lucky to have like a front row seat a little bit to the evolution of all of this in real time because of a group that I'm involved in of some really amazing women, some of whom are in the beverage space, some who are in the gummy space. And um I just, it was, to me, it was like a dirty little secret that the cannabis beverages were all getting into this space and nobody was talking about it. And so when I finally talked to one of the CEOs of those companies and she kind of explained to me what had been going on, like my mind was a little bit blown um, because up until that point, I think I saw when you flashed on the screen and I know Chris, um, he's great. And he, I saw it lower in the comments. He put something like, I used to be such a prude, I think about like MT9. Yeah. 
And that was what it was. It was like when we would talk about it before, it was like, oh, MD9, it's the worst thing in the world. And MD8 and all the other, you know, it's anything that's not regulated cannabis is scary, dangerous, unregulated, gross, you know, and, and beneath, you know, the cannabis, regula- regulated cannabis industry and all of us operators who fought, you know, tooth and nail and, you know, blood, sweat and tears to get our businesses started. And then these guys just like roll up with some empty nine gummies and put them in a corner store, you know? So it was a lot of like, you know, looking at, looking down our noses at, at empty nine in general. And there was good reason to do it. A lot of it is unregulated and could be very dangerous. I would not like to find out that the empty nine gummies I'm consuming are made in somebody's garage in, you know, Texas somewhere and like with people with no, you know, no sanitary requirements of any kind. And, you know, I'd be more worried, honestly, about getting like some salmonella or something nasty from those things than like what the THC would do to me. On the other hand, the THC is way stronger than it used to be when I was a kid, when I was in college. And um, it is dangerous that kids can walk into a store and get, you know, a giant bag of gummies and end up in the hospital having a panic attack, you know? Um, So I think the key and what I was really wanting to say in that article is two things. Number one is like, we don't really have a choice because the way that the system is set up, we're all set up to fail essentially as, as regulated cannabis operators. And we do have, you know, we have a fiduciary duty, a lot of us to our investors and um, the people that put their faith in us. And so we have to explore, you know, every conceivable legal option to keep our businesses alive. Um, and so that's part of it. And then the other part of it is leaning into compliance, you know, it, at, as these bigger players get in the game, the hemp D9 and hemp D8 and other cannabinoid processors will have to level up and they're already doing it. So once they're at a place where they're testing the same and you know, you're getting the same COAs and you know that everything's being created in the same way that it would be created in a regulated you know, cannabis licensed facility, then Unless you're, you know, maybe a constitutional, you know, you know, strict constitutionalists and have decided that the farm bill loophole is not a line you're willing to cross, there's no reason to get not get in it, you know? Sorry, that probably didn't come out completely no, articulate, I, but I followed you actually, and you said some things that that uh I'm really happy that you it sounds like you've had like an evolution of thought because maybe you can take me through it because I'm trying to mm-hmm. understand. I'm trying to understand the people that look down at their nose at it because, frankly, uh, I can pull up a quote our head regulator recently said, but she said something to the effect of everybody thinks that hemp and Delta 8 is the devil. They only ever say hemp and Delta 8, by the way. They never talk about Delta 9. D9. Least, I yeah. know. It's so weird. They always <laughs> Which is choose... the more intoxicating of the two, right, right. between D8 and D9. <laughs> right. They always choose D8. Right. And she said mm-hmm. – uh, and I quote, 95% of our problems go away if the federal government closes the loophole. Um, and I'm just uh, – <laughs> well, so just in this case of Illinois, um, I want to make it clear that you know, um, the idea is that these products are sold at a lower um, 
here's what she said. These products either go untaxed or are only subject to retail level taxation, making them more affordable than cannabis. This harms our social equity licensees. So Illinois has a little bit of a unique argument. They're arguing that because these products are cheaper, we're harming licensees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, getting uh, undercutting. Um, but I'm, can you just take me through the evolution of thought where can we start to where you were looking down on these hemp yeah. operators and kind of go through like what changed your mind or what? Yeah. Well, I, I think it is this concept that as a regulated operator, like I said before, we've gone through, you know, hell and high water, a lot of us to to get our businesses going. And much of that is because of the regulations and the fees and the things that we have no choice but to do. Um, And so there is this unfairness of like, we've worked so hard to even get to where we are today. And then you guys just waltz on in here and start selling competitive products at half the price. And like, how are we going to, you know, how can we compete with that? So there is that part of it. My, my answer to that is like, life is tough. So we didn't know. We all went through what we went through and here we are, right? Um, It's not a good enough reason to not explore it, you know? Um, But that's definitely like the mentality of like, you guys don't, you guys don't know and half of what we know. You haven't been through half of what we've been through, you know? And then the the second part of it was the unregulatedness of it, right? Like what, you know? not having any regulations around how these things are made. It's just, you have no idea what people are, how they're being made, what facilities they're being made in. You don't even know, honestly, I mean, you don't know if the COAs, there's nobody like, like most hemp um, products have, you know, they do tests and there's like QR codes on the packaging and things like that, but you don't know. I mean, they could be like made up tests. Nobody's looking at them. They're doing it because they think that, um, and they're not wrong that consumers would like to see what's in their product, but you don't know if it's real and there's nobody, no, there's no oversight. You know what I'm saying? So that piece of it is really scary. And then what that means is that your average consumer has no idea what the difference is between any of this stuff. They walk into a store and they see D8 or D9 and they're like, huh, but I could only get that in a dispensary. I guess not. Let me try it. You know, so they have no idea um, what they're getting themselves into on the operator side, we do know. And so what it says to me is that we're really left to police ourselves, right? So in other words, if I'm going to jump into the hemp D9 space, it's up to me to find um, and do my due diligence with a manufacturer that I trust and that I think is doing things compliantly and above board and with testing and sanity, sanitary methods and SOPs and the whole thing. Um but I don't think that that second argument's wrong. I mean, I, I would venture to say the vast majority of hemp manufacturers are probably doing the bare minimum when it comes to those things because it's expensive. Um, and they're certainly not, I don't think, checking when they sell their products to stores, whether the stores are carding kids when they walk in. Um, you know, in a dispensary, it's everything is much tighter. So there's far less fear that a kid's going to get their hands on that stuff unless somebody goes to the dispensary and buys it for them. So that was kind of all the stuff that we were fed, you know, and that we were told it's dangerous. It's gross. It's um, sells in inferior like stores, like the smoke shops aren't nearly as nice as, you know, mm-hmm. the dispensaries and, um, and like screw them. We went through a lot to get here. So 
we're not going to embrace these products or these people or this new, you know, this new method of making these intoxicating cannabinoids. Yeah. And what, if we could take me through it again, what, what was it that flipped the switch? And by the way, thank you for being willing to talk about an evolution and path. I think there are so many people that are just doubling down on whatever stance they're taking, you know, whether it be for or against this stuff. And yeah. to, to hear somebody that that is fluid in their thought and open to ideas, obviously, is really refreshing. So what was it that, that ultimately took all of what you just said and you were like, turned it on its head. <laughs> yeah. You're like, yeah. I think I'm going to do this. <laughs> it, it was talking to my friend at that, at the the beverage company when yeah. she kind of let me in on this like secret that I didn't know that like all these beverage companies were using hemp D9. And I'm like, what? And that's what made me decide to go and sell my cookie dough, which was being made, you know, my dynamic with rude girl goodies was one of our sub brands under dynamic Jack and it's cookie dough that we made in New Mexico with regulated cannabis distillate made from our farm. And after talking to, and I, I, that's when I got the idea of like, well, if they're selling beverages all over the country and they're doing it like online and in, you know, other stores, why can't I? And that's when I talked to Lisa, learned what was really going on behind the scenes. And I was like, well, if they're all doing it, then I'm going to do it for my cookie dough. So that's where it really came from this, like, me seeing the, the beverages, you know, the ability suddenly for these beverages to go from one state to like 10 states, you know, in a matter of months was doing it with empty nine. And they weren't, you know, this one particular beverage couldn't even get out of the gate with, with national um, licensing and production of their drink because none of the regulated cannabis operators wanted to invest in it because they were drowning like everybody and also it required giving up space for a canning line and storage i mean beverages are not you know they're kind of bulky products and so you had these beverage companies that would start with regulated cannabis in one state and then could not get out of the gate in any kind of licensing or co-packing deal you know and that's when they all finally turned to to hemp d9 and but 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 from the consumer perspective like if you go on most of their websites you wouldn't know you would just be like, oh, it's all THC. Like, why can I order right. this? Okay. And I think the confusion was like a little bit purposeful. And I don't think consumers quite get it. They just see it's THC. But if you and I circle back to the beginning of the conversation, it is just THC. So maybe right. that's a good thing, you know, um, that they don't understand all the difficulty of how that beverage ended up on the shelf in their dispensary or local store, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's always been a trouble, a, a thing that's hard for me to explain to people. But one time I actually saw a, a nurse uh, that's going to come on my show um, talking about this. And somebody was saying, because uh, it's actually a, become a pretty big story. We covered it, but it, it ended up getting picked up by Axios as well. Uh, Benny's, mm -hmm. which is a yes. big time retailer, they're carrying some cannabis drinks that. now. Mm -hmm. And um somebody uh, I that's like my... a watershed moment in illinois by the way i think i that's what i'm saying like that's a really it's big really it's a big, big deal. deal oh yeah. and what this person was saying was so i shared that and they were saying you know i'd rather go to the dispensary and get drinks and uh because mm -hmm. i i want a high that actually that i actually feel these are these are lesser than what you'd find yeah. in the dispensary and the clinician basically just said like can you explain to me the difference 
molecularly and the dose that you're talking about, because we're talking about like a 10 milligram drink, 10 milligram drink, it's Delta 9 THC. One is just hemp derived. And the reason right. they call it hemp derived, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, I mean, in the case of drinks, I thought this was kind of funny. I've talked to a few different drink companies. The, ultimately, the reason they call it hemp derived is because if you were to boil it down, it would legally be defined as hemp. <laughs> there is no I difference. Don't, yeah, I actually don't know if that's entirely correct, but I don't, I, you know, I'm still sorting my way through a lot of this shit because Fair. I think it's up to interpretation. But what I understand it is, is at least from the natural, when they, well, so there's a difference between, and I don't like this terminology. This is what the DEA has used, right? Naturally derived D9 and synthetically derived mm. D9. Mm. Meanwhile, they both use a chemical process, right? So I don't, right. but the difference is, and this is what I think you might be referring to, is that when they bring the hemp in for, for the naturally derived version, none of those plants theoretically are over 0.3% THC, right? right? So that's why they're legal. They're being brought in that way, right? What comes out at the end of the process is where I think people are like, okay, well, if you, you know, reversed it, you'd still be legal kind of mm -hmm. thing, you know, because it came from the 0.3% THC. The synthetic version is even more, I guess, arguably legal, I guess, because it starts with CBD. So mm, they're taking yeah. CBD isolate and then they're converting that into D8. And then one more step is like D9. This is how, and by the way, this is how it's been explained to me by extractors. So I'm probably butchering some of it, but it's a layman's understanding and sure. I've seen the equipment, of course, but, um, but in that case, you're starting with CBD, which is legal under the farm bill. So that I think that the issue is whatever pops out at the end is where people are like, well, it's derived from something that is legal under the farm bill. So therefore it's legal under the farm bill. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and especially, and that's where that language of the dry weight comes in too, because they never specified, you know, when that plant material comes in, it's dry weight. Right. And it's 0.3% THC or less. So that's how it comes into the facility. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's why it's legal. I think <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. But I, I yeah. ultimately view this all as, and I think everybody should. And I think, like I say, it's the kind of the point of your article. Everybody should embrace this because it is whether or not it was the legislative intent, as people like to bring up, it's progress. Like, how do you, how can you not see this as progress? Some people are selling cannabis like nationally, accepting credit cards, getting funding. Go ahead. I think we see it as progress, but I think the public sees it as scary. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm a parent, you know, I have two kids. My son is 12. Um, I have a niece who's going off to college and came home, you know, last year with like a bag of gummies from a smoke shop that was like, I don't even know how many hundreds of milligrams, you know, like, and that's scary because I have a high tolerance, but, you know, if you gave, if a kid took, you know, a 50 milligram empty nine gummy on accident, a kid who'd never, you know, really done, had ever smoked or had an edible before, I mean, it would literally put them in the hospital probably. And like a panic attack is what they mostly get when kids end up in the hospital after eating a gummy. So no, is any of this deadly? No. You know what I mean? That's one of the beauties of the plant, right? Um, but it's it could be really scary. And I, you know, that's what that's why I was saying it's 
for us, it's progress because we just want to see the plant and the medicine and, and the products be, you know, treated like they should be like, mm-hmm. like, you know, regulated like alcohol, you know, but as a parent, I didn't like the way I, I'll tell you this cool as a parent and as a lawyer, you know, I did not like the way that this came about. And to your question earlier, I think maybe that's part of it too, is like, as a lawyer, we're taught to follow the law, and, you know, that there are right and wrong answers. And it doesn't feel great, I would say, you know, as a lawyer, to take advantage of a loophole in the law that you know damn well that nobody meant to be there in the first place. It was an accident, literally an accident, you know, by legislators who really didn't obviously have a firm grasp on what you know, the language they were putting in, like how that could be interpreted. Right. And so I would say it's coming out to be, and what I keep reading now is it's coming out to be crazy enough. It seems like the answer to all of it. Right. Right. To federal legalization, to the whole enchilada. And we've all been fight, you know, we've been fighting it so hard on the regulated cannabis side for so long now, not only are you seeing this shift where people are open to using it in their products and distributing it, but people are saying it's the answer. Like we're already, people are now like, we're already federally legal. What do we need all this legalization mumbo jumbo right. for? Um, which is also incredibly fascinating to see that evolution. Like, holy shit, we went from like hating them and wanting them to disappear to like, they're the answer. <laughs> you know, it's nuts. Right. <laughs> Only in cannabis, right? Exactly. It's crazy. Like I say, well, and I don't want to like I'm not trying to push this topic off, but it is interesting how, at least in the case of Illinois, it seems like it's one of the only actually I think I can tie this in pretty well. It's one of the only I would say it's one of the strongest challenges to the limited license system like i've bitched about the limited license system from a consumer standpoint for years but apparently that doesn't matter i'm just saying that kind of sarcastically (laughs) no i get Um, it i get it but but like all of a sudden this this hemp thing comes around and now it's like so it started as what you were talking about and this is how i'm going to tie it in because i want to hopefully we don't get too lost in this but it started at in Illinois. This conversation started about these high schoolers that bought just the exact scenario you laid out. Yeah, and it was always pitched as this public health uh, emergency, right? And people were freaking out, and and it was just a story that wouldn't go away. People kept bringing it up, and so what the hemp growers did in our state, at least a lot of them, they partnered with a representative and they ish they introduced legislation where they said, "Hey, we agree." This is an issue, and and as a result, we would like to be regulated just like you are. So mm-hmm. we would be only be able to sell to 21 years of age or older potency testing, and you can even tax us. They they added that on. You can even tax us the way – because they always say the taxes are undercutting our – right? You remember I just read that yeah. at the beginning. Right. So well, it's like, 280E too is a nightmare, right? They, they don't want that. That's for damn sure. <laughs> yes, and the response was just basically no because – if you just gave every hemp operator a license, then that dilutes the market. And as a lot of social equity licensees say, is social equity is market share. So if you're taking away from their market share, yes. you're taking away from their social equity. 
Yes. I mean, you're essentially giving out more licenses, right? right. Up to whatever the max is for the state, which is a couple hundred, I think. So I just, I, I bring that up. I, I, I like how we tied that in, like, because you bring up a point that was discussed in Illinois. And it's interesting that hemp operators came back with a solution. And basically, it seems like it's just taken the, yeah, it, in Illinois, it's taken air out of it a little the air out of it because it no longer can you really argue it's a public public health emergency at least in illinois because they're like hey regulate me yeah regulate yeah me. i'm up for it well um, and it's fascinating i thought cole i don't know if you saw this but i thought it was really fascinating to watch like kind of what happened in kentucky which is mm. you know where mcconnell's from and he's the architect yeah, yeah. of the farm bill never obviously meant for any of this to happen but he would never ever ban it in Kentucky, I mean, I said this, he would never ban it in Kentucky because he would destroy, you know, Kentucky's economy because there are a bazillion hemp growers there. So Kentucky just passed some pretty stringent, you know, regulations um, around hemp and hemp products. You're now, I think, going to have to register in the state and a bunch of other stuff. I mean, I didn't do like a deep dive into it, but I mean, it's, you know, it's substantial. And I think it's very telling that, you know, a conservative state like Kentucky when faced with the option of, of banning it altogether and chose not to, and that they're putting together, you know, real regulations. And I think that will be a template, you know, for a lot of other states to follow to the extent they don't just fold the hemp products into um, the existing, you know, cannabis framework in that particular state. But I think banning is not the answer. You know, I think regulating is the answer. And to truthfully, the easiest answer is to regulate them the exact same way, because back to our original point, it's the same plant, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, and that's why I but think- But it, that- it, it is hard, though, for the social equity applicants. Sorry to interrupt you. I just, no, you fine. know, I, I get that, like, giving out all of these licenses when there are already, you know, licensees out there that can't even get their businesses stood up would be kind of brutal. Right. Yeah, and I yeah. mean that's that seems to just be the the circle we spin around here in Illinois. It's like we want to end the cycle of criminalization, but complete decriminalization would mean, you know, kind of open licensing. Yeah. Yeah. So that- which which by the way is, you know, not I mean, look, I'm I'm in New Mexico. We purposely never got into retail because we've all seen this movie before of what happens in unlimited license states with retail and there are now over, I think, 600 retail licenses in the state for a state of 2 million people. I mean, we've got, how many dispensaries do we have open now? 130, 40, 50, I don't know, but some under 200 dispensaries yeah. for 12 million people, right? Yeah. Um, so you can throw a rock in Albuquerque and hit like four dispensaries in a row. It's a bad look. It's bad for the market. Everybody's struggling because of it. So, you know, unlimited license markets are not the answer either. It's just kind of mind blowing that nobody can get, you know, to a position, to a compromised, you know, structure that kind of takes the best from the unlimited license markets and the best from the limited license markets and, you know, meshes them together. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it seems like Yeah. Like if we want people to be able to participate and address 
the issues of criminalization, we have to give them an opportunity to participate by way of, you know, being licensed and complying to regulations. And like you say, following the rules, your favorite thing to do as a lawyer, right? (laughs) Um, But uh, But I I will say to your point too, before about, you know, what's happening in Illinois is that it segues back into, you know, the, I don't disagree when people say like, yeah, giving all these people licenses would hurt the existing, you know, social equity applicants and their ability to get their businesses stood up. But I also believe that there are a lot of things that could change in Illinois, you know, like outdoor growing, for example, which you and I've talked about that would help social equity applicants get up and running and then be able to have, you know, compete realistically if other new licenses are granted to hemp growers or anybody else. So I just think there's a lot of ways that the Illinois market is really handcuffed right now, um, especially for the social equity craft growers and retail owners. Just really quick, because it's another question that has been like the theme of this podcast before we get to outdoor outdoor stuff and kind of wrap up this this hemp conversation. Um, I'm curious just because you brought it up and it's a, it's a perspective I hear all the time. Like from my perspective, the, the, the end all be all goal of legalization was to end arrests. But as you've said, and as other people say on this show all the time, it seems like people bring up this other goal, which is like the idea of kind of bluntly shielding operators from market forces. I feel like mm-hmm. they, they want to prevent price compression they want to prevent receivership or going out of business, which I think both you and I can agree. We would never wish financial hardship on anybody. Um, but like, really, it just seems weird that at cannabis, we've even made that a goal when meanwhile, in like the restaurant industry, we just accept that like 80% of businesses go out, out, they just go out of business within the first five years. Yeah. Like what I'm just curious, though, what do you think is the because you said I don't you said I don't think open licensing is the. Is the uh, answer, the answer either, and I'm guessing it was probably because of some of those reasons I just listed off. Why do you where do you think that that idea comes from with cannabis? Like just honestly asking, because you're not the only person that has ever said that that needs to be a thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, did the. The failing. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because I will tell you, I've, I'm, I sit on a working group in, in New Mexico where it's a lot of um, legacy um, operators who want the you know governor to essentially uh, pause on the issuance of new dispensary licenses. Not like a, not like a seat end, but just like a breath because there's just way too many of them. And it's, it's not just hurting the legacy, you know, businesses it's hurting the small businesses too you you can see all of their revenue numbers on their website and they're not sustainable you know making less than thirty thousand dollars a month running a dispensary is not sustainable so um but there's a lot of people that i'll talk to in new mexico that'll just say look that's capitalism that's the market right people go in they they try their hand at it they lose their business that's that's it i think um But I think it does tie back into what you were saying before, right? Because these social equity programs sprung out of a place of wanting to, you know, essentially remediate some of the damage done by the war on drugs, right? And this acknowledgement that we've put a lot of people in prison for, for weed when we shouldn't have, right? And that it was predominantly 
you know, African-American men um, that suffered. And so if you look at it from that perspective and, you know, if you really want to get, you know, highfalutin about it, you could think about it even from the perspective of affirmative action, which of course the Supreme Court just shot down. But, you know, there's this, there's a, there's a piece of this where it's like, yeah, like these folks deserve an opportunity before everybody else, you know, to, to have their hand at it. But, and to your point, why should that be limited in any way? But I think there's also a responsibility for each state that does this to, um, to put together a structure that is, I don't know, that, that, that people can actually have a business in, you know? I mean, everyone, when you make it so, so easy to get a license, people go and get them. <laughs> And then they spend their life savings. And, and so is there, you know, I would like to see something that's somewhere in between, you know, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing, for example, for people to have to show that they have some money in the bank before they get a license so that they can reasonably succeed. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people would say that that's like big brother-esque, like, you know, and it should just be free market, but, you know, I don't know. I'll give you another example. This is maybe a better example. Our farm is in a little town in Estancia, New Mexico, with 1,500 people in it. There's no grocery store. There's no bank. There's no restaurants except for, like, a McDonald's, Taco Bell, fried chicken, Kentucky Fried Chicken place, like, 15 minutes away. But there's two dispensaries. Why? Why are there two dispensaries? I mean, you know... Could a, for example, a simple population study tell you after 38 plus states have come online, how many people can, how many, how can a dispenser, how many people does a dispensary need to have, right, to stay in business in that state? What does that population look like? Then if they, they fail, then it's on them. But at least they haven't been set up for failure with, the, you know, having 14 dispensaries next to them to compete with. Right. Yeah. And it's it. And some of that zoning and stuff like in New Mexico, for example, they just make exceptions to all the zoning laws. You want to be near a school? Fine. You want to be in a park? Fine. You want to be near three other dispensaries? Fine. It's like, what's the point? I mean, they all see dollar signs. But at the end of the day, if none of them can have a functional business because they're all in competition with each other, they all go out of business. There are no dollars. Right. So I just feel like there's got to be some rationality to it. Um but I understand the counter argument, which is capitalism and, you know, you either succeed or you fail, you know? Yeah. And for me, it's a little, it's honestly less about the capitalism. I mean, that's definitely like, I feel like a convincing argument. Some people would say to like some of the things you said, like with regard to people getting set up in, you know, almost like a, not a dispensary desert, but a dispensary abundance area. They would say, you know, well, the invisible hand's going to sort that out. Um, right. My my thing, and I guess really quick before I shift to my main thing on limited licenses or my main contention on limiting licenses, mm. uh, which, like I said, doesn't have to do so much with capitalism. But really quick, uh, Oregon, I've spoken to the lead. He was the lead commissioner at Oregon's like liquor and cannabis commission or control or something. I'm not sure exactly the acronym but anyways you know oregon's always used as uh, <laughs> right occm mdc i mean there's so many right right CCD, right. right i think it's I-E-F-T-R, olcc but I'm, exactly though we <laughs> have poison. 
We have so many. There could be like a little scatter plot of oh my uh, acronyms. God, seriously. But um, and then all the different names for hemp and cannabis have been, have been <laughs> regulated cannabis thrown in there just for added confusion. <laughs> right. So he said, because I asked him about this, and it's, it wasn't an original question. It was something I had heard on Vice. Like, would you have allowed open markets to flourish the way it did when Oregon, you know, first opened up? And he said, of course, it wasn't his choice. He's just the regulator. But if you were asking his personal opinion, he said, yeah, he would have done it again. And while, again, people had it tough, it was like this idea that people knew what they were getting into, or at least they should have. Like you just pointed out, maybe some people don't, and maybe some people walk in blind, but it's like the way he explained it was he'd much rather that and you lose your shirt rather than not even being able to wear your shirt, <laughs> which he didn't say it that way. But you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think I think that argument, at least the last part of it, flies if it doesn't take six years and like destroy your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so much of the, these licenses, like in Illinois were held up for three years plus in litigation. Right. And that is a long time for to sustain partnerships, relationships, plans, you know, money. <laughs> I mean, you know, and to say that, I mean, I'm sure if you asked most of the social equity applicants in Illinois, they would have told you they never in a million years could imagine that these that the licenses would have been held up that long, you know? Um, and the other piece, piece of it is that people don't, maybe the per capita numbers that I told you before, or maybe the limited license model would work better if it weren't for 280E, because that's really the kicker, right? And why these businesses can't stay afloat because whatever margin they make is getting eaten up by the taxes they have to pay. So I, I think there's, I guess that's just one example where I'm saying there's other factors, you know, at play to why a limited license or unlimited license market works or doesn't work. Yeah. You know, like what would an unlimited license market look like if 280E didn't exist, right? And if people could, for example, bank normally it looked like hemp <laughs> right right it would yes um exactly right and that's why people did that but um come good full point. circle Touché. yes um but i don't you know it's it, it i guess my point is it's hard to even know necessarily sure. what models work best because we have these other factors that are so significant floating around us at all times whether it's the taxes or the banking or just the fact that, you know, everything we do costs more, um, our, our programs and our software are typically inferior, you know, like we can't, we can't use, um, not that people necessarily want to, but we can't use like, you know, uh, work day or paylocity or, I, you know, somebody was I mean, asking me this the systems, other day, like, somebody yeah, was asking me why the point of sale at dispensaries suck all the time. And I was like, uh, it's gotta be I, because they have to have certain vendors they cobbled or together. No, it's all cobbled together. You know, uh, everything that has been created as a workaround to the, you know, to credit card processing has sure. been created in like, it, it's literally like a duct taped. It's <laughs> like these different systems. That's what Dutchie was trying to solve. Right. Uh, but, you know, by like kind of making it, one-stop shopping and having a system that actually is integrated and works together. I don't think they, I'm, I don't know that much about it. I'm not sure they succeeded, but mm -hmm. yes, it is a, it's a messed up system with these different pieces. And now what you find is that like the one that's good at e-commerce now wants to get into payments. So then they launch their own payments, but they're, 
again, everyone's cash strapped because of 280E and the, you know, the market being in the shitter. So it's all done on these shoestring budgets and, you know, nothing works right. I mean, as a result, and it's a lot of outside factors, um, you know, that come into play, unfortunately, and things that you can't even anticipate. Yeah. Well, um, I just want to say really quick as we wrap up, uh, just, uh, I've had so much fun with you today and I hope you've had me fun too. too. Me okay. too. I love talking about this shit. Nobody wants to talk to me about it anymore. Well, we should, yeah, my we, family for sure. <laughs> we should do this again sometime. I've really enjoyed yes. my time with you. So yeah. um, really quick, just because you brought up Hinch, uh, Mitch McConnell, I like to show this picture of him with his oh. hemp pen. Um, <laughs> I love it. Anyways, uh, oh, this, this is my- to a nicer guy that he gets tied to cannabis. His legacy will be forever tied to weed for the rest of his miserable <laughs> life. <laughs> right? right. It's oh, hilarious. Wow. He definitely so did not. So this is my main contention <laughs> with the limited license market. And it, it just seems to be like a universal constant in each state that and I, I don't know, maybe this problem's bigger than wow. bigger than me, but like the criminal ju- my point is the criminal justice system seems to be the main enforcement mechanism especially in states that have limited license markets like illinois because these are seen as operators yeah. that are unlicensed and that's that is the enforcement mechanism instead of it being like a a potential business offense which is what i've talked to some defense attorneys about like you know depending yep you know, on the relative damage you may cause to society. Uh, but you hmm. very rarely, unless it rose to that level, would you find yourself thrown in a cage? You know what I mean? Right. Right. Um, which is good, which is progress, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, the point is you'd hope that for cannabis, look, I know that we just talked it like, obviously we don't like, you're talking about unregulated sales and everything else. So when you look at these products like that, this this is in like vacuum seal bags or something. It doesn't look very. But no, Um, my point is these just look like entrepreneurs, not these. These are the cops. They look like <laughs> they look like they got into the bag. Honestly, if you look yeah, at they, do. they do. But they do. <laughs> this this load looks like. um. Yeah. You know, just a young entrepreneur that maybe couldn't get a license. I don't know. Maybe I'm making assumptions, but I just feel like it sucks that trafficking continues to be dealt with in that manner in Illinois because it's still criminal law uh, that that comes into play. So that's really my problem with the limitations on licenses is, is that like you can't get in the business if you want to. And so if you just do it the way you always did it you know, before 2019, um, you get met with something like that, you know? And I just want to say really quickly, like I generally am supportive of regulation, but I do have to say that, like, I think we need to, I don't know how to put this exactly. It's a thought that's been spinning around in my head for a while. So forgive me if it's a bit raw, but I'm just going to test it out on you and see what you think. It just seems like cannabis has been trafficked for years. And as we've always said, without little issue, nobody dies from cannabis, right? And I'm not saying, you know, I'm just saying, though, that like, I'm not saying that regulation isn't necessary, but if it's been happening for all those years without all of this seed to sale and stuff, like, again, I'm not saying we just have to rip out the system just because of what I said. 
but like also like let's be a little real here yeah yeah i mean listen i i'm you know there are regulations that i think are necessary and there are regulations that i think are not and maybe Mm -hmm. not just maybe they're not necessary maybe they're in my mind not even smart or maybe they're even detrimental you know like the inability to grow outdoors in illinois Yes, I completely disagree with that. I think it's detrimental to the market. I think it's detri- I think there is so much that could be done there. Um, but you know, I'm also a mom, <laughs> and uh, you know, and I I don't as much as I would rather have my children someday smoke weed than drink alcohol because I think alcohol is a far more damaging and dangerous substance. But I'd also would like them to wait till their brains are developed, <laughs> you know, to yeah. do that ideally. Yeah. Um, and not have access to it all the time, but right. it's also just part of our culture, Cole, which I think, you know, is a whole nother conversation, right? Like we'll see, it'll be very interesting to see how weed unfolds like in across Europe, you know, because they've always had a more lax, you know, um, relationship with drugs and alcohol and wine and dinner with their kids. And you know what I mean? Like, so I just think we're a very like rigid, uptight society in general. And we think we have to regulate everything, you know, and, and sometimes we do and sometimes we don't, and there's gotta be a place in between. It's all. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Well, you brought it up a few yeah. times and thank you. Cause you said really kind things about uh, some of my work on this folks. If you didn't know, I released uh, what I'm calling an exclusive because mm-hmm. I've never seen this reported in the media. Um, so there are two people that, from what I've heard, are cultivating outdoors in Illinois. One facility is Nature's Grace and Wellness, which this photo is actually uh, from a different website that I found. And this is actually what inspired me to really take a look into this because people that told wow. me that this was going on kind of secretively, they told me this was going on. This is what they describe the facility is looking at like, but I... I wanted to see it first, you know, and when I saw this picture, I'm like, that's it. That's what they were talking about. And so ultimately my mind. Yeah. Ultimately we got these photos, which um, are of cannabis growing inside of that facility outdoors, Mm -hmm. which if I could just really quick and then I'd like to hear why, why you found this intriguing. Um, that's exceptional folks because while you might find cannabis growing in greenhouses which some might argue is close to growing outdoors there's no facility there's only two facilities rather uh that i'm aware of that have the ability to do like as close to an outdoor grow as you can get and so if you're listening to the podcast and couldn't see this structure it's just a screened in structure uh with cameras around it and otherwise, it's it, you're just outside. I call it a trip to Home Depot, by the way, because mm-hmm. when you look at something like this, like this facility, yeah. this is like a, yeah. a multi-month project. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it takes a long time. And then even when you get it set up, you've got all these temperature control stuff on it, for yeah. lack of better words. I'm not an engineer. Yeah. HVAC systems. I think that's the technical term. You've got mm-hmm. to get your environment under control. So it's not like right. just because you built the building, it's ready to go. There's a whole no. process. But this, right. you go to Home Depot, you buy some fucking tent poles and some netting, and by the end of the week, you can grow cannabis. And so when we talk about social equity craft cultivators not being able to grow anything and stand up their facility, I've been thinking, well, this is the answer. Throw them a it bone the here. Answer. Um, but I'm curious. I think well, it's how... a figure, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm a little long-winded. I 
been smoking weed. Um, uh, I'm just curious. Yeah. How did you, how did you find out about this? Why'd you find it interesting? Just curious. I've been talking to Cole Eastman, my partner in Dynamic Jack, about this because he is part of a craft grower license and like many, you know, has struggled to get off the ground. Of course, the irony there is we would love to have Dynamic Jack products in Illinois and I, we have the brand and he's got a craft grow and we can't do anything with either one of them to get us together because of the, the money. But um I, you know, after two years of practicing in an, um, or of, of operating in an unlimited license market where people grow outside, I, I think at some point I must've mentioned it to Cole as like, this is the answer. Like why, if we let the craft growers grow outside, they can get up and running and then they can get some money and then they can build an indoor if they want to, but at least they can have, you know, an operational business and, the answers. And so Cole was like, you're right. And, and it was during that time period where I think the, the omnibus bill was up that got, you know, kind of sidetracked by the kids with the hemp gummies that we talked about before. And um, they were talking about, you know, increasing the square footage, the canopy square footage. And I'm like, that's great. But if you let them grow outdoors, that, you know, increasing the, the canopy maybe helps with investment, right? And making the margins work ultimately if you can grow at a certain price. But like, you know, if you told if you told them tomorrow you can go grow outside, well, maybe not tomorrow because it's the winter now, but you know, in the spring. And my and the other but the responses I get is it'll never happen. It's a security concern and the MSOs will never let it happen because then it would be, you know, competition to them. My answer to that is pretty simple. And by the way, I'm in I call myself I'm an MSO baby. Like I grew up in the Illinois market in an MSO. That was my first entry into the cannabis industry, right? Is here. My second was Dynamic Jack in a completely different market. Um, but um you know, I think the answer is to allow the craft growers to grow outside and then give them like a two year head start and then let the MSOs jump in. Because the other piece of this, in my opinion, and again, I'm just one person and I don't mean shit, but I think Illinois is ultimately going to have a real problem and get crushed by Michigan and other states that do allow outdoor growing because the weed is half the price and it's better. Um. I mean, I know a lot of people already that go over to Michigan to get, you know, to get product and come back because it's half the price and it's better weed. So Michigan, if look, if Michigan can grow outside, I mean, I, the first time I saw, I saw a farm called Grasshopper Farms in Pawpaw, Michigan. It was the only outdoor farm I ever saw before Dynamic Jack. And I was like, I got to see this. I'd seen pictures of it online. And I was like, I got to see this place. It was stunning. Stunning. And, and Will Bowden, who's the guy, you know, who runs it, you know, he's such a, proponent of outdoor that he actually built an indoor grow on the property just to prove that the indoor weed wasn't better than the outdoor weed. So I just think that is the answer and it benefits the MSOs too, because if they don't all start getting into that, I mean, look, outdoor is the cheapest way to grow. And we all know weed is a commodity, right? There's going to be your top tier, your bottom tier, everything in between. There's going to be stuff grown just for extract, which is what a lot of people do it with outdoor. Right. Um, and so if Illinois wants to compete, they our growers got to learn to grow outside. They don't know how. They don't yeah. have any idea how to grow outdoors. And they're going to get crushed. And I mean, if you look online at the Illinois Department of Agriculture, they talk about how Illinois is a leading producer of different 
uh, you know, agricultural yeah. products. The state's climate and varied soil types enable farmers to grow and raise many other They're agricultural They're missing an opportunity. Yeah. They're missing a big opportunity for Illinois. And there's, like I said, I believe there's a way to do it where everybody benefits. You let the craft growers go first, then you let the MSOs get in the game, then everybody's growing outside. Nobody's going to come and raid your farm and steal your weed, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, they're so scared that, about the security. And it's like, you know, hemp growers grow outside, people grow outside in other states. And, and you know, you know, I got asked because I shared this on like different weed forums. And one of the questions that I got, because this is a, a long article. So thank you again for reading it. Um, well, and I want to know your take, too. I want to hear like your thoughts on what I just said, too. Yeah. And well, I mean, situation. I completely agree. That's exactly why I wrote. I don't that's not the primary reason I wrote it. But it was just like a, just because I've been talking to all these craft cultivators, everything you just said was exactly what I was thinking when I was writing this. But to just be completely candid, one of the pe many people have asked me, and it was particular like it, I found it notable in a community of cannabis consumers. They were like, "Why should I care about this as a cannabis consumer? It seems like the typical." Illinois rigmarole. I don't know. They didn't say exactly that, but basically that. And I said, the reason you should care is because if two people or two entities are allowed to grow outdoors right now, why can't I as a medical patient? Because in Illinois, and by the way, I'm sorry, I was speaking to you as if I didn't realize you knew so much, like you were saying that you knew about the omnibus thing and all. I didn't realize you were like, Oh, no, but you know you more said, than I do for sure. <laughs> but did you say you're in Chicago too right now or something? I am in Chicago. Okay. Right so I, just see, got back I was talking to you like you weren't even from Illinois and stuff. I knew yeah. you were from Illinois, but I didn't. Know, so my apologies. No, it's fine. I was oh trying my gosh, to like it's fine. fill in the blanks, but I've got these mm -mm. tents behind me, you know, in order to stay compliant. Well, you can only see one. Um, yeah. And, and my weird curtains because I uh, had uh, an air conditioning unit there. Um, but, uh, you know, I do that to remain compliant with the law, but, you know, I'd love to be able to take advantage of the natural elements and obviously I two mean, entities can. So why can't grow I? plants on your freaking deck? You know what I mean? It'd be, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a silly construct and it's just, it's not. And that was know. my primary reason for writing it. Ultimately, though, I was just kind of like, well, I heard. I'm so glad that you did. When I saw it, I was like, finally, someone else who's like, you know, thinks the way I think about it. Yeah, because my and question was, <laughs> my question was, do I have to do that at home? Do I need to go to Home Depot and get some tent poles and some cameras and some netting? Will that allow well, me I, to I will, I will tell you one thing. It's a lot harder to stand up a farm from a patch of dirt <laughs> like we did in, um, than, than just going to Depot. But sure. it is a lot cheaper and a lot more simple, especially, you know, in a micro. And if you have a good, you know, good growing environment and all that. Um, mm -hmm. And consumers, I think, will care about it or starting to care about it from an environmental perspective, just in terms of the amount of, an, you know, of light usage and waste and all that that goes on, you know, at the big indoor facilities. And so, you know, people care are, care about that stuff. And they also care about, you um, you know, just look at the organic revolution, you know, everybody wanting their food to come, you know, be as, come as close to the, from the earth as possible and all of that. I mean, that's outdoor, outdoor weed, that's nature. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. of course, I'm sure you've read articles and things about like the terps and stuff that, you know, they find in sun grown plants versus indoor. Um, so I just think all around it would make 
it would just be such a great solution if they had offered that up at any point, you know, or even now, or, or it won't happen, but for the spring, you know, to our growers, look at all these craft growers, we could have beautiful outdoor weed by the fall, you know, right. but we won't, won't want. let it grow. Let it grow. Let it grow. Exactly. And I think the other part of that cold too, and this is what I challenged. I asked Charlie Batchelor a question about this at a grown in event. Actually, it was just like, are you taught like, like Cresco is one of the biggest companies, right? So they are one who can afford like a Washington lobbyist, right? Mm -hmm. Who goes to Washington and talks to people about legalizing weed. But I asked him, I'm like, are you talking to your West Coast counterparts? You know, those, the bigger companies in California and, and Oklahoma and, you know, those unlimited Colorado, the unlimited license state operators that have survived and thrived, whatever that means in cannabis these days. Um, are you talking to them? Because, you know, if you're locking arms with your counterparts on the West Coast, and then you're talking to, you know, federal legislators, it would seem that you would have more, you know, power and more sway. And the, the answer I got was basically our priorities are different. So no, we're not really talking mm. to each other. And I just feel like it's a lost opportunity because it's, um, that's how I came up with this idea that probably maybe we'll never see the light of day, but like I never in a million years would have thought that like outdoor growing could be an answer to, to the, the, you know, the craft growers and their inability to get stood up. I never thought that that, I never would have thought of that had I not had the experience growing outdoors in New Mexico. Yeah. So I just think it's a shame that we're not all talking to each other because yeah, we might have somewhat different priorities, but at the end of the day, I think we all kind of want the same thing, which is to be able to operate what, our businesses normally and cross state lines, right? Yeah. What do you think the difference in priorities might be? Well, for example, California and Oklahoma would love to give all their weed to places like Illinois, you know, and oh, we don't want just, it. Yeah. True. You know, we don't want their weed flooding our market, or at least we, you know, the MSOs don't, but really any business. I mean, God, they're already struggling. Can you imagine if tomorrow the weed started flowing in from California? Mm. <laughs> we would smoke the MSO. I mean, that'd be right. I mean, it would be really, it could be really bad. So th that's what I mean by the priorities are different. California has an overabundance of weed and would love to put it elsewhere. Illinois doesn't, you know, and then you have limited license states that are like, hell no, keep your weed to yourself. So, you know, I think that's a definitely a, a conflict, but that doesn't mean that they're not in agreement on other things, right? Yeah. Well, um, one of the last questions I have for you, because I feel like I've uh, used a lot of your time, you know. Um, I love it. I love talking to you. It's been great. Cool. Again, we have to do this. We have to do this yes. again. Um, but yeah. I'm just curious, you brought up being a lawyer and this person that uh, – I actually found your article off of another person that was a lawyer uh, and they were mm -hmm. talking about hemp and stuff. And I'm just curious as a, as a lawyer, but also as a cannabis advocate, I, this is the big idea that I've had with hemp that I, I feel like, like you said, it's almost like for us, it's a big win, but maybe for others, it's not viewed that way, but I'm just curious, uh, just one last thought on that, on this topic. Um, this person was basically saying that hemp should be for industrial purposes, not getting high. Uh, they were saying yeah. that that is not the intent of the law. And someone else responded by saying, like, you know, whatever the case may be, I hope that you're not suggesting that finding workarounds to escape prohibition is somehow bad. And it's this weird <laughs> legal and ethical 
debate <laughs> right. here. Like, this is, seems like something that would be in like a college class. Yeah, it's like totally. what's what's the law and what's the intent, but what's right, <laughs> you know, what's yeah. Well, I think that's what you know. I I get it as a lawyer. It's like you don't, you know. I mean, it'd be like I always joke around that, um, you know how you can't vote if you're a, a convicted felon. Yeah, but like you could still be the president of the United States. I always joke that's a typo. And like someone clearly forgot to write that you can't vote if you're a convicted felon and you can't be president if you've been a convicted felon. Like it's a typo. Someone just needs to fix it. Yeah. But, <laughs> that's my little analogy, but I um I don't know. I don't know. I I think to your point earlier, two years ago, I would have been like, nope, I'm not getting into that freaking loophole. I'm a lawyer. I went through this, I did this the right way. I got my licenses. I paid for them. I did it. You know what I mean? I would have been like, no way. Um, but in all honesty, like, I mean, this is going to sound horrible, but like desperation opens your mind a little bit more maybe to to some things that like you wouldn't have considered before. And I mean, desperation is a hard word, but you know what I mean? Like you're survival you're surviving yeah. and all of a sudden you're reading these things and you're like, okay, it's a loophole, but like, Okay, that's on them. They exactly. wrote it. I didn't write it. And when you, <laughs> you know? see that they're just not and enforcing it, I'm not supposed it. to know they're. You know, I don't. I don't read their minds. You know, yeah, this is what I'm sure they didn't intend this, but like, you know, again, to your point before, such is life. Right. right, and they're not enforcing it in line with what we usually exactly. perceive to be their intentions. So it's exactly. like, again, exactly. it comes back to that point we started with. It's almost what did you say in your article? put your life vest on and <laughs> start swimming. Or, yeah. Start swimming. <laughs> yeah, start swimming. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think the fact that they had an opportunity to close that loophole and they didn't, and they kicked it, that was a rubber stamp to everyone. Yeah. And now the gates are wide open. You're going to see, this is the year of, of hemp D9 and, and really starting to take over, I think. Yeah. And I want to give you the space to close, but I always wonder like that kick and then also even the legislation People always say it wasn't the intent, but did they even write the bill anyway? Like usually the all these bills are just provided <laughs> right. to legislators anyway. So like maybe that was the legislative intent. But like, yeah, did if Mitch it, McConnell it, mean it, it right. when he was signing it? Like did he think, oh, this is this Mitch is... McConnell definitely didn't, but it would be right. a pretty hilarious joke if the other people were in on it and, right. and somehow like, knew that this was gonna happen. We're gonna be smoking THCA it, but... weed. Yeah. Exactly. THCA weed is cracks me up. I'm like, so wait, it's not weed until you light it on fire and then it's weed. Right. <laughs> like, what? See, I can't even make heads or tails of this stuff. And I, and again, I was like, THCA, no way. Well, now I'm like, well, look at this person and that person. What are they doing? And so who knows? Never, I, never say never. That should that, never say never and should be a motto in this industry. And also, you know how people say hope is not a strategy? Hope yeah. is not a strategy unless you're in cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's going to be my tagline. That well, and I must have been high when I took this job. That's going to be the name <laughs> of my book. <laughs> I'm going to steal that quote. That's awesome. Um, oh. Well, I want to give you the space. Anything that we didn't talk about that you that you wanted to talk about? I know we covered all stars in the map, but... Um... No, I enjoyed this. I want to... I, we got to get together offline with... Um, with with my other coal yes. and, uh, and have some a, and a, pro a proper session a proper sesh yes absolutely i would love that so <laughs> me too
Thank cool. you so much, Cole. And thank you for writing that great article and like doing that. I don't, you know, it's, I just, it's crazy. I mean, look, I, I, you know, it's not their fault, I guess, that they were grandfathered into this, but to know that that's been going on this whole time while like we keep being told you can't grow outside, you know, it's pretty, that was, that was pretty good reporting. Major kudos to you. That was a scoop. Thank you. Thank You're you. Welcome. And it deserves more attention. So I hope I hope that it does get it. I hope that the conversation continues because this would be this. This is the thing that could I mean, when I saw it, I immediately wanted to send it to like Brad Spearinson because I'd been talking to him about this. And like this could be the thing that could actually like potentially make change happen. You know, your article. So good job. Thank you so much. Very and, impressive. And folks, I hope you found as much value in this conversation as I did. Um, Allie, we got to do it again. Uh, definitely. definitely podcast, but as you said, we got a sesh and uh, mm-hmm. really looking forward either way to the next time that we connect. So, me too. Me too. Thank you so much for having me, Cole. Appreciate yep. it. Take All care, right. everybody. Have a good day. Bye, everybody. Bye.